We're junkies. And art is our drug. Family, we love. But art, we're sugar for art. You think I wanted to leave my sisters, my mama, and my papa and go stick my stupid head in the mouth of lions? Put, putting your head in a lion's mouth is art? <laughs> no, sticking your head in the mouth of lions was balls. Making sure the lion don't eat my head, that is all. Pod, a 32 Fans podcast, where we discuss all things movies, past, present, and occasionally future. My name is Sammy Chester. And I'm John Gilpatrick, and today we're going to be talking about the movies of November 2022, including Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans, talk a little Tar and Todd Field, right? Very much hitting two of the big movies. Black Panther 2 was maybe the biggest movie of November. I told you that as a big Thor fan, I was going to use the Thor movie this summer as the litmus test of whether I would still go with MCU. And I was so disappointed by Thor 2 or whatever, Thor 5. Thor? Yeah. <laughs> what number it is. I guess it's Thor 4. The Thor sequel or the quadrequel, it threw me off the MCU bandwagon. I'm going to wait until there's an MCU that people are really buzzing about to go back in. At this point, I'm completely MCU'd out. So that's maybe. I think you're going to be waiting a while. <laughs> To me, the uninspiring list of what they're doing for the next, what is it, eight years they announced. So I may be uh, waiting a while. But as you said, there were a lot of interesting movies. Maybe the thing I'll say before we get into Tar, The Fableman, and whatever else we saw, I had shared with some of our loyal listeners, John, that I felt I sort of did a disservice to foreign language movies last time we spoke. Mm, yeah. I realized after we spoke that, oh, you know, I maybe just have kind of been ignoring, which is easy to do. I mean, even for you and me who, you know, like movies, and I think other people who, who try to stay up a bit more on movies that come out, pretty easy to kind of miss foreign language movies. And I realized I've been doing that. I'll give some of the titles that I did add to my list well-regarded foreign language movies that came out i plan to see a bunch of these i won't necessarily see all of them but i do just want to give their names a little bit of love here are some of the names paris 13th district the girl and the spider il buco which is a documentary i believe in italian the shepherdess and the seven songs taming the garden a night of knowing nothing aeneas in love intragalda fabian going to the dogs now i may have mispronounced most of those they all are actually in foreign language, the actual movie. These are, I guess, the English titles, at least some of those. Some of those clearly were in foreign language. I think mm -hmm. most of those are in Europe. Maybe the bias I saw is I didn't really see many Latin American or Asian foreign language movies on the list I looked at. Honestly, like I haven't heard of any of those, I don't think. And yeah. I don't know if that's a product of like me not being on social media anymore. So I'm not seeing things that people are talking up. Yeah. I really get most of my film news from like the chat and a handful of podcasts that I still listen to. I'm not familiar, I don't think, with any of those titles. I the only thing I would say is that like I know like Decision to Leave is a big one that I definitely, definitely want to see. We talked Athena. I feel bad I didn't see Athena and Paris 13th District back to back. They're both in my top 10. They're both named uh, after neighborhoods in Paris. Right. And they both are about life in a given neighborhood. Athena, just to kind of remind people, 
is sort of a really kinetic, intense action movie about a migrant community of, I guess, North Africans who sort of rebel against the police after there's police violence against one of the Black Parisians who lives there. So it's a very intense, in-your-face, violent movie. Paris 13th District is very, very different, but it's just very, very good, fun, light. It's a romance, but it's about sort of the imperfect modern world of dating. Basically, three different romances that kind of loop back and forth into each other between I would say people in their 20s living in this one neighborhood in Paris. And like there's like an Asian lady, North African man, one or two, I guess you could say white French people. I don't know what the proper terms are these days. Done really well. And I think you'd enjoy it. Both Athena and Paris 13th District, they really speak to each other. How they're both looking at different neighborhoods in Paris in the modern. And I think they were both really fun. That's my foreign language Paris corner. Yeah, that's funny. And before all the listeners kill us for leading ahead of Tar and the Fablemans with a, just a random list of foreign language films. Yeah. Um, I was just going to shout out a couple more that like I haven't seen yet, but I've heard really good things about EO. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's like a Polish movie about like a donkey. donkey. Um, and uh, Holy Spider, I've heard is also really good. Um, it's a Danish movie. So um, representing Denmark at the uh, Oscars, if it gets nominated. One last one then, and then we will move on. Neptune Frost. I'm not 100% sure if it's in a foreign language. I know it's set in some sort of dystopian African future, but like very kind of sci-fi, but it's supposed to be really fun. Hearing about it all year, and I know it was on like the New York Times top 10 mm. Something. Yeah, a lot of those coming out already, which seems mighty early, but so it oh, is. <laughs> I complain about it every year, so let me... I know, so do I. <laughs> early December, you shouldn't be saying your favorite TV books, or particularly books, because... There's a zillion books. You can read a month's worth of books or watch a month's worth of movies in that time. You haven't seen everything. It's impossible. But, but also, people release movies on December 31st. I know, and I get that like, critics are just like, yay, we got to see everything, like, haha. No, but you didn't see um, everything. Respect the time, respect the December 31st releases. Like, we should do a whole episode one time being, like, best th- movies that were released on December 31st of all time. <laughs> and, like, imagine, or just top tens, and I imagine there'll be some really, really special ones, you know? It is crazy because it's just, like, it's so indicative of, and I could do a big rant on this, Mm-hmm. how like insular criticism is now they're obviously not trying to promote these movies to a wider audience i don't think you're talking about movies that most people are not going to have the opportunity to see for months mm-hmm. right i mean unless they like our french netflix subscribe they are not going to get a chance to see some of these movies you have to get your top 10 list out on december 6th because some other critic is going to get it out on the 7th. Yeah. And so it's just like trying to get your list out to be more influential. I mean, I'm in a critics group. We used to do our awards the first week of December, which always drove me nuts because I didn't even get screeners or have opportunity to see some of the movies that we're voting on if it's the best movie or the best performance of the year. And finally, like we had enough people to lobby that we pushed it back to January. And I'm so grateful we did, even though there were people like, oh, but we'll be less influential in the community. I'm just like, who cares? <laughs> it's just actually honest. I do use these best of the year lists as they drop in December to help I do too. add to my like movies I do want to see. That said, the Oscars is when people start thinking about the past year in most cases. And so if I come out my with my best of the year, the year list like a few weeks before then, I feel I'm very well covered. I've taken advantage of the first two dead months of the year to, you know, catch up properly. So yeah. That's where I am. I'm usually ready by mid-January, but also because the episode we do with the matchups, I like to just wait until after that. Be that as it may, let's talk about a real elitist movie. (laughs) 
often in like plays or movies is a way where you introduce a character the characters will unnecessarily say their full name and describe who they are as a way to like introduce the audience to who just walked into the room i don't know if it's like a more avant-garde style or whatnot where you get thrown into a movie where like big words and like long concepts and like very inside baseball type discussions are happening for a pretty long period of time and like characters names are being referenced only their first name as if you kind of are supposed to know who they are and I'm talking, of course, of Tar, the new yeah, Tar yeah. movie. The reason I mentioned this is kind of high elitism and that the first half an hour or so can be hard to catch up as to exactly what's going on. Did you also have that impression that for the first 30 minutes, you were like, okay, I'm getting like a PhD right now in <laughs> music composer theory. And also who's Amanda, who's Sebastian, who's John, who's this uh, guy, who's that guy? Like there was a lot going on in the first half an hour plus. Yeah. I mean, the movie is ostensibly about the title character, Tar is her last name, first name, Lydia, played by Kate Blanchett, and she is one of the most renowned classical music uh, conductors and composers, I guess, modern times in this fictional world that obviously resembles ours in a variety of ways. It's a long movie. I was maybe not prepared for quite how long it was. I'm trying to like clock, like when does something kind of start resembling like a storyline, like develop really? And it's like closer to 50 minutes where there's kind of like a little bit of push and pull and conflict outside of one isolated scene, which becomes really important later on and has kind of gone like, I think, semi-viral outside of the context of the movie for some weird reasons. I love that but, scene. Yeah, no, it was a great scene, but also like it was just kind of, it's weirdly isolated until late in the movie, right? Even while I was watching that scene, I was like, oh, this is definitely- I You know what's happening. You, you know where it's going to go with it. Yeah, I could tell sure. from the way the main character was portrayed that there was going to be some sort of comeuppance. You know, I, I think broadly speaking, this is this is like a classic tale. And it, today it has a whole yeah. feel of like Me Too or whatnot, but it's just really a classic like Citizen Kane type story, I think, of like mm -hmm. a great figure- being brought down and like humbled, so to speak. And then that's not, you know, ruining anything or spoiling anything to say that. I think spoiling would maybe be getting into particular plot details, but it's not spoiling anything to say. This is like classic Americana story of Ayla Citizen Kane. I don't think it's Kate Blanchett is in the main role. I think Kate Blanchett knocks it out of the park in the main role. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, so without like... We'll we'll obviously get into like our thoughts on the movie overall. Like, I think it's a very good movie. I don't know if I think it's like outstanding movie. I think I need to see it again. Major reservation about it is that she's almost too good for the rest of the film. Like, it's just this like towering performance. I think in search of a movie worthy of it, it's not necessarily even a knock on the movie. It's just like she's I think so much better than like everything kind of happening around her. Like, she just owns every single scene, and she's probably in every single scene. I really like how you're framing that. What I would say is the script, the framing, the music, you know, framing meaning like how scenes are set and the way lighting is used and the way scenes go from, you know, one scene bleeds into the next scene at times. The way that the plot calls out to different scenes over the course of the movie. I mean, we can get into the ending, I think, a bit. There's so many elements that play into so much more. This is a movie, as soon as it finished, I said, I'm going to watch this again because yeah. there's just a lot there there. And also I would just enjoy the heck out of watching Blanchett again favorite scene of the year maybe definitely my fun the funniest scene of the year is toward the end of the movie when she's playing her accordion and she's kind of hit like <laughs> low and she comes up with that like little ditty kind of on the spot where she's like uh -huh. <laughs> 
accordion in her apartment by herself and just like lashing out at her neighbors. I forgot to mention this to John when we recorded, so I'm jumping in now just to call out the fact that Tar and Weird Al Yankovic both came out in October, November, that both of them really steal the show with hilarious scenes that mix accordions in with their humor. So great year at the movies if you like accordions and jokes. This is a really funny movie, right? Like, I don't think there's like a harsh humor kind of sprinkled throughout and at times thrust into your face. And certainly the ending has like a really acidic message. So all of that maybe is a bit of, do think Blanchett gives like a towering performance that maybe at times seems to push against the fabric of the rest of the movie that's holding her in. But I also think that the director surrounded her with framing, script, music, thematic message. So I do think the director is doing a lot there for the movie he's given his lead. I don't know how much that is a Todd Fields-ism, but I also didn't know so much about Todd Fields before I saw this. Maybe you can kind of give me a bit of context. It is Todd Field uh, singular, so I just thought I should mention that. But he has only directed two movies before this. One of the, his first was, I think, in 2000, 2001, called In the Bedroom. It was like a major acquisition out of Sundance kind of like one of the titles the festival like became known for from that period sort of a family drama or even like a community drama yeah both in the case of this movie the family and the community are kind of one and the same not like literally but just just sort of like the way that it is there but his second, yeah it's also sort of like a family drama where people's lives are sort of coming up well, what's the second little children called? little children yeah so in the bedroom and little children how much do you see elements of them? And it's been what? It's been like years since those two movies came out, right? Yeah, Little Children came out in 2007. So it's been, you know, 15 years, I guess, since his last movie. The other thing that I'd mentioned just about Todd Field is that has acted before. The thing that you know him most familiarly as an actor is Eyes Wide Shut, the Kubrick movie. And he plays yeah. the like piano player who's like yeah. a friend of Tom Cruise's character. So well, pretty I'm... like prominent part in that movie. I've read somewhere because I was reading up about him after watching uh, Tar, particularly close to Kubrick in some context. Like Kubrick considered him almost like a protege or whatnot. Or at least oh, that's interesting. That's the way it's sort of been framed. I don't know enough about Kubrick to sort of appreciate how much do we see Kubrickian, you know, elements in, in field, uh, singular. But <laughs> in Tar, how much did you see his past two movies in Tar, whether in sort of the family takedown drama or whether in like the lighting, the music, you know, the way the movie sort of is put together. There's probably a through line between the movies. In the Bedroom is like very emotionally bare. It asks you to feel sympathy and empathy for the character. You have heroes and villains and kind of a, a something of a sense. In Little Children, it kind of flips it on its head and is more about like there's darkness in all of us and so on and so forth. Tar is a more observational piece than anything else. I mean, you do get the scene with the student where she's like obviously kind of abusive. It's that, interesting like... you see it as abusive. I was very much, I was on her side in that interaction. You can feel if you want that she's making points. Her teacher would do that to a student in front of a class and then ask them all to raise their hand and point at him is yeah. unquestionably abusive. And... Oh no, I agree, I agree. She definitely, as a teacher to a student, she takes things too far. Now, you can intellectually contemplate or masturbate about the felicity of the so-called atonal, but the important question here is what are you conducting? What is the effect? What is it actually doing to me? Good music can be 
as ornate as a cathedral or bare as a potting shed, so long as it allows you to answer both those questions. Now, to be fair, I mean, there are times when you will simply have no choice, and you will be made to stand in front of an orchestra and pretend that there are these invisible structures, but my prayer for you is that you will be spared the embarrassment of standing on the podium with a 433 trying to sell a car without an engine. Because now, my friends, now is the time to conduct music that actually requires something of you. you know, music that everybody knows but will hear differently when you interpret it for them. For instance, Max, why not a Kyrie? You know, like a... Something like box, mass, and B minor. <laughs> I'm not really into Bach. You're not into Bach? Mm. Oh, Max. Have you, have you ever played or, or conducted Bach? Honestly, as a BIPOC, pangenic person, I would say Bach's misogynistic life makes it kind of impossible for me to take his music seriously. What do you, what do you mean by that? Well, didn't he sire like 20 kids? Yes, that's documented. Along with a considerable amount of music. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm unclear as to what his prodigious skills in the marital bed have to do with B minor. That's, that's your choice. And after all, a soul selects her own society. But remember, the flip side of that selection closes the valves of one's attention. Now, of course, siloing what is acceptable or not acceptable is a basic construct of many, if not most, symphony orchestras today who see it as their imperial right to curate for the Cretans. So slippery as it is, there is some merit in examining Max's allergy. Can classical music written by a bunch of straight Austro-German church-going white guys exalt us? Individually, as, as, as well as collectively. And who, may I ask, gets to decide that? You know, what about Beethoven? You into him? Because for me, as a U-Haul lesbian, I'm, I'm not too sure about old Ludwig. But then I face him. And I find myself nose to nose with his magnitude and inevitability. Come, Max. Indulge me. Let's allow Bach a similar gaze. Sit. Now, this is old filigree, right? I mean, it could be a first-year piano student. Or Schroeder playing for Lucy. Big question for you is, what do you think, Max?
you'll play really well. But nowadays, white male cis composers, just not my thing. Don't be so eager to be offended. The narcissism of small differences leads to the most boring conformity. The problem with enrolling yourself as an ultrasonic epistemic dissident is that if Bach's talent can be reduced to his gender, birth, country, religion, sexuality, and so on, then so can yours. Now, someday, Max, when you go out into the world and you guest conduct for a major or minor orchestra, you may notice that the players have more than light bulbs and music on their stands. They will also have been handed rating sheets, the purpose of which is to rate you. Now, what kind of criteria would you hope that they would use to do this? Your score reading and stick technique or something else? All right, everyone. Using Max's criteria, let's consider Max's thing. In this case, Anna Bovaz Dothir. Now, can we agree on two pieces of observation? One, that Anna was born in Iceland, and two, that she is, in a Waldorf teacher kind of way, a super hot young woman. Show of hands. All right, now let's turn our gaze back to the piano bench up there and see if we can square how any of those things possibly relate to the person we see seated before us. You're a fucking bitch. And you are a robot. I mean, unfortunately, the architect of your soul appears to be social media. You want to dance the mask, you must service the composer. You got to sublimate yourself, your ego, and yes, your identity. You must, in fact, stand in front of the public and God and obliterate yourself. The way his attitude, he's like so dismissive of very influential and respected music because he's like, oh, like, I have no need for in my life as a music student. Because Bach had 20 children. Like... No, not even that. He even, he says something to her, something like, oh, like, what would a heterosexual white male have to teach me about music? I'm only into, mm. I identify with as like a gay 21st century minority or something like that. And, you know, that's what she's pushing back strongly against. And like that sort of obstinacy and stubbornness and kind of, you know, that gets in, as you said, to like the viralness of today's conversation. But there's something to my mind kind of so repugnant about a certain extreme style that he's, which, which I'm sympathetic to where Tara's going, which is why I don't think she, as a professor, she shouldn't be dressing him down that amount. But I'm, I'm sort of sympathetic to her being like, no, like, don't only look to identify with people that look like you or sound like you, you know, like learn from others and diversify your interests and all that kind of stuff. Outside of that scene where I agree she still kind of crosses the line and becomes abusive, the movie does present itself in such a way where it's never clear cut that like she's done as the bad things that she's accused of doing. There's certainly a way where we kind of recognize that she probably did do some of them. You know, the movie kind of does weave that way where it can allow you to interpret her as a character and then sort of the way society has responded to her in a variety of fashion. Her as a character can be interpreted in different ways based upon sort of how the audience maybe wants to in terms of how they perceive these kinds of society, social dilemmas. So much of Tar is about someone who always has to be in control. You know, it leaches into her private life. It goes into sort of her collapse. Yeah. Like she, she makes a number of dumb errors for someone who's like so smart and kind of powerful and, you know, has so many resources. And I think it comes from this constant need to kind of be completely in control and therefore like even like her personal assistant which becomes this like major gap in her in like her in her power is yeah. you just sort of assumed this 
element of control over this personality, which, you know, this gets into maybe some of the Me Too and the way, you know, I know you saw another movie this month that sort of touches on that, but yeah, sure. it's sort of how sometimes abusers and, you know, clearly Blanchett's character is an abusive person in the, in the context of this movie, their thirst and desire and expectation to be controlled and sort of lends itself to, you know, undermining their their own role in their own position but i you know i guess one of the things that kind of struck me is that in scene with the student i agree with you certainly she's being abusive i just kind of imagine a student at juilliard where i think it's supposed to be in this context yeah it was would even if he was upset because the his professor had just kind of dressed him down he was being kind of an obnoxious ass but still even if his <laughs> professor had sort of just dressed him down in front of all of his classmates for him to like yell out and curse her out it just there were that and then the scene which i won't say exactly what it was but like the scene where blanchett's character in public causes a scandal and like kind of you know pushes someone over shall we say yeah. those are the two scenes that the latter one i thought might have just been imagined and sort of like a fantasy and i know like i wondered way, that too yeah actually it's interesting to say that and, and, you, and you never get definitively that it happened i think that the, you can take the basic interpretation that it did happen because it doesn't really matter for the plot either way like, it never says that it didn't yeah. yeah but other stuff obviously isn't happening and that yeah. you can imagine that i mean there was moments thinking the movie was building to a place of she's in mental institution conducting music to herself the whole time you know what i mean where it's just like is it, any of this like actually happening or you know is this all just kind of like a woman's fantasy you know because that's just sort of like the way that the movie plays with you and the character some of her nightmare sequences or you know elements like that imagining things you know imagining noises at night metronomes that balance between an abuser and an abuser's desire for control and the two sort of or it's like an a circle that each of them just encourages the worst in the, in the next. I really like the ending. I've read stuff, some stuff online where people are like, oh, like almost a perfect movie until that ending. What was, oh my God. What was the... the necessity for the end? I read some things which said, oh, the movie would have been perfect if it would have ended when she's watching the Itzik, uh, what's his name? Yeah, it's Itzik Perlman, but he's a violinist. She's watching like a real life famous conductor who is supposed to be like her mentor. People were like, oh, if it just would have ended with this real life recording where he was speaking to students, it would have been a perfect movie. And I was like, no, like, I think that coda was so powerful because it kind of- It was so good. Movie experience. Oh my God. I haven't read the same, you know, some of the same things you did. I didn't know that there was this feeling about the ending. Maybe the second kind of like main character in the movie is played by this, uh, I think, German actress, Nina Haas. Mm-hmm. And she's the spouse, I believe, of okay. Tar. And she's also, she plays a string instrument. I assume it's a violin. I'm not She's the first sure. violinist. So yeah, she's oh, like- the first violinist. Okay, yeah, yeah. I wasn't sure if it was Beal, but- yeah, the most prestigious role in the in the orchestra. Exactly. She was the star of the uh, German movie Phoenix from uh, mm-hmm. probably five or six years ago. Mm-hmm. And I think you're a fan of that movie because we've talked about uh, mm-hmm. its director before. I always think of that movie as like having one of my favorite endings ever in a movie. And I feel like, honest to God, like, I feel like this one's right up there because I thought it was so good. Sort of tracking shot away from the stage without saying too much blew me away. I was just like, holy shit. That's like dark, you know, but it was really exciting. I felt like just, you know, gave the movie a lot more kind of thematic heft is part of the reason why I'm just like, I guess still wrestling a little bit with how much I liked it. Like I said, it's it's on a scale of liked a lot to really, really, really liked, like took me aback almost and all that stuff. And I want to watch the whole thing in the, in this, in the context of it. We reckon with the ending, knowing sort of everything that's going to come. Yeah. Leonard Bernstein, by the way, is the name. Okay. Of the, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Life director, you know, you get very educated about the world of elite music 
and the world of conductors and, you know, and everything else. Really kind of clever to do it that way and interesting because you're getting this character piece, which traditionally you would have this one act rise and, and then uh, fall. And this real movie is just kind of, she's already at the peak and it's just fall and it's a slow burn fall. And I think that was kind of an interesting way to, to do that. But also because we don't know what they're talking about and they don't bother to uh, tee us off, like there's no context provided to a lot of these conversations, like we're meant to observe it as extraordinarily pretentious. And I think that that serves the film really well. I will leave off that to me, it's my new number one movie of the year. Elements in it that were like so sophisticated. At the beginning, I agree with you, kind of takes you a while to kind of get into it, but it was so skillfully made. Blanchett is so good. The contemporary themes are so thoughtful and communicated in such a sort of interesting way to chew over. And I know it's a movie to me that skated by very quickly, despite the length. There's a number of really good roles in the smaller roles, but I think it's a special movie and it's a movie I would encourage everyone pretty much to see. It's not my number one of the year, but I really, really liked it. I think it's a great movie. I'm definitely excited to watch it again. Yeah. I think it was a worthy return for a director who hopefully doesn't have to wait 15 years to get another movie made. Yeah. Um, and I think it was just a reminder that, you know, as we, I think, emphasize, like, Kate Blanchett's one of the best to probably ever do it from an acting perspective. And yeah. um, this is probably her best work. Yeah, she's really good. So let's talk about impressive directors in that uh yeah. <laughs> Because two movies came out this November. I only caught up with one of them, which both of them are fairly respected directors, uh, a fellow named James Gray and another guy named Steve Spielberg. Both of them made coming-of-age stories. I got to assume that there's, you know, we've talked in past episodes about this in the context of Kenneth Branagh's Belfast, Hans Curran's Roma, that there's clearly sort of like Roma did so well that I'm sure, you know, directors made their own kind of like self-focused coming of age stories before Roma. But I think Roma did so well and was so kind of artfully made that it inspired the rest of these guys to be like, well, I also want to tell the story of my childhood. Um, And so Spielberg made his version of that. I didn't see the James Gray Armageddon time. I've heard actually pretty good things about it. It's a movie I'd recommend to Spielberg fans, which is probably most movie fans. To me, it was kind of like, okay, I like Belfast more than it. Some of the things you don't like about these movies, I just think Belfast did in like a way that was more emotionally real and like had more real characters i felt almost Uh all the characters in the fablemans were fake curious given your kind of general opposition to these movies (laughs) yeah is that that's that's well established enough that like we don't even need to tee that off right yeah i'll I'll tell you this john i felt that first 45 minutes of this movie have the worst elements of what you don't like in these kinds of movies on this interesting so sappy and so inauthentic and like so characters weren't playing real life people they were playing exaggerated characteristics but not in a way where like oh this is through a child's eyes and so through the child's eyes this is his memory of what they were i just felt Mm -hmm. it was like oh okay i need someone to play the nerdy disconnected dad i need someone to play the sort of you know upset 1950s mom i like i just felt all the characters were playing Carver and Hollywood like roles and not like real people. So yeah. I, 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 that disconnected me from the movie. And even though it kind of came back and had some nice scenes later, to me, it's a mediocre like watch. But I, I'm curious your take. It definitely was like a little bit too sweet by half, um, as all of these movies are. Yeah, I haven't seen Armageddon Time. I'm curious too, because I'm a James Gray fan. I feel like that's probably going to handle this all a little bit differently. I probably like this movie the best out of the other big ones that we've talked about. What I really kind of found unappealing about Belfast in particular was 
not that it was a coming of age story or semi-autobiographical or from the perspective of the child, that it was infantilized at historical moment. But I push back then, but I kind of push back again on it now. That's yeah. one of the things I like about it in that you really did feel this is through the eyes of a small child where like his parents were these heroic, beautiful, like dancing until the music ended. Terrible conflict that was going on around him was narrowed through his prism. And I just didn't get that whatsoever from the Spielberg movie. I didn't get any of the sense that, oh, this is a, a child's memory of that. How much yeah. do you see like later Spielberg motifs and themes in this movie? Because to me, that would have made this movie super special. If you would have watched this movie and gone like, oh, I get some of the dynamic in E.T. amongst the siblings. Uh, because, you know, people always say like E.T. was informed by Spielberg's childhood and by his parents' divorce and, you know, whatnot. I was hoping to see, okay, how much of that E.T. family dynamic are we going to see in the movie about Spielberg's own real-life childhood? And how much of the dinosaurs, the majesty, you know, like how much were we going to see some of the, the classic Spielbergian elements in the movie, which actually is the movie that he's telling us how it shaped his love of movies, that I completely didn't feel. I don't think that that was there like all that much. I mean, certainly the events of the of the Fablemans, as they're sort of explained to us, inform a number of Spielberg movies, but not like in such explicit ways and not in ways that he's presenting to us in this movie. There was no allusion to Jurassic Park like you kind of maybe wanted or... Take. I didn't need direct allusions. But it's I mean, Close Encounters, like these characters are feel a lot like the characters in Close Encounters. The movie that sort of is most explicitly about his parents' divorce and and what maybe they were like, you can trace. I've watched that like fairly recently, for, and it was for the first time. And I feel like now I can appreciate some of that stuff a little bit more. Me, this movie overall, like had a low ceiling because of this baggage I'm bringing into it of not liking this like new trend of great directors making their life stories on film. I also felt like this took itself less seriously than some of the others, maybe because there's no historical element to it. And it's just his childhood could kind of appreciate that overly sweetness at times isn't flashing with thing that should deserve like more of an adult treatment the characters are maybe a little bit one-dimensional but that's how you view your parents when you're a kid like i found that fairly authentic such a disconnect from oh wow okay all good that, uh give me like 10 seconds the cat just destroyed something which i'm gonna have to okay tomorrow. Sammy's cat's causing problems we have this uh miniature piano like the size of your hand playing <laughs> music when you open it it's funny that it, that this happened while we just finished speaking about tar <laughs> there we have it on top of a mantle where the cat does go and the cat's never knocked it down so i always just figured it wouldn't uh which was maybe dumb in retrospect and the cat just <laughs> picked it off the mantle and it broke into pieces uh, i'm sorry to hear that yeah we very have a cat every time i think well she's never jumped up there she's never going to she always does <laughs> yeah i don't know maybe a cat is like education vis-a-vis -vis. make else kid proof or kid safe you know so if you can yeah oh man that's annoying looking around this house now i realize there's like 15 other things that could easily break so i probably have to <laughs> push things back a bit further but let, let me rip a bit more on fablemans again like i think it's kind of mediocre i would say the movie divides into three and a half scenes there's the family part which is like the first 45 minutes there's the high school part and then there's the divorce that kind of goes back to the family part. Part of the Spielbergian lore is that his parents got divorced when he was young. And then there's the three and a half is there's this little like coda at the end 
where David Lynch cameos as John Ford. Right. I felt that was unnecessary. It's fun to see David Lynch, a famous director. It's pretty funny. Yeah, but you're not wrong. It didn't inform anything vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the movie. You're right. To the extent it's just sort of being like, hey, this is the autobiography of Steven Spielberg when he was a kid. You know, obviously he wanted to shuffle that in there, true or not. The family part in the beginning, I just felt dreadfully sappy. And the family part sets you up for like sort of the divorce part, which is like the final third of the movie, really. And therefore, yeah. it just didn't work. The mother-in-law, that's like every single, the most exaggerated stereotype about Jewish mother-in-laws. Them looking in the oven, them checking out forks and the knives. Every single like joke I heard over my childhood about like Jewish mother-in-laws was like the most exaggerated, blandest version was the joke they played in this movie when they are, you know, showing off the mother-in-law. It's played up so obviously that this couple have like are and so disconnected and that you know kind of annoyed me i felt the high school scenes i mean we've seen so many movies about high schools over the years you know so many movies very forgettable generic high school scenes it made me not feel that it was authentic the movie and somehow it kind of worked for you the last bit i'll just say please at the casting when you have paul mm -hmm. dano and seth rogan in particularly their faces and the sounds of their voice are so recognizable that when you don't give them characters that are meaty enough to sing into, the entire movie, I was like, oh, that's Seth Rogen and that's Paul Dano. I was like, why isn't Paul going after some California oil or why isn't Seth Rogen <laughs> being the Riddler? <laughs> thinking Seth Rogen was going to whisper to like someone being like, hey, you want to make another porno, Mary? Just <laughs> what a fall. Like Seth Rogen is Seth Rogen. He's such himself. You know, he always plays like the same version. And even though he's a little bit dressed down here, it's still so much him. And therefore, I don't think it helps to cast famous people. I mean, you know, it worked with David Lynch as John Ford because that was kind of cute. But like, I, I don't think it helped to have Seth Rogen, Paul Dano. Neither one is like particularly great. They're just kind of average. I agree. I think that if you're going to point to any acting standouts and Judd Hirsch, Kate okay Blanchett's in this movie, but Judd Hirsch is great. Yeah, he's and I thought Michelle Judd Williams was also good. It's not my <laughs> most favorite Michelle Williams performance, but I just yeah. think she's a, a really outstanding actress. Also, it's a bit of overacting. I think it wasn't her best performance, but it also was, I think, effective for the movie the script is good tony kushner done a bunch i guess was yeah good. tony kushner wrote the script i thought there was a lot of fun lines about the challenge of pursuing art mainly from judd hirsch that's really like the, the best scene in the movie i think where his great uncle visits him and like yeah i agree you're going to join the circus i can tell you can't hardly wait you want to be at the big top you'll shovel elephant shit until they say okay sammy now ride the goddamn elephant oh you love those people oh your sisters your mama your papa except Except this. This I think you'll love a little more. You'll make your movies and you will do your art. And you'll remember how it hurt. So you know what I'm saying? Art will give you crowns in heaven and laurels on earth. But it'll tear your heart out and leave you lonely. You'll be a shanda for your loved ones. An exile in the desert, a gypsy. Art is no game. Art is dangerous as a lion's mouth that'll bite your head off. Look at me. Look at me. Is it a wonder the teeny? She wanted nothing to do with me. There's good writing, but I just don't think the actors carry it off in the hallway scene. I've seen the hallway scene get a lot of love. The hallway scene with the high school bully after, you know, if there's yeah. one thing this movie does, yeah. this movie convinces you that Spielberg was making Oscar-worthy material as a... <laughs> I know. There's no way, like, with his cheap camera, he managed to get all those shots 
to that quality <laughs> level. It's again, but that that part I'll give you because he may be remembering now what he filmed then and he's giving the best version of it. The mom dancing at the campsite. I don't think that scene is as good as the movie thinks that scene is, but it is fun to think of if that really happened to young Spielberg and how he now has made a whole movie about his mom dancing semi-nude at a campsite. So just that idea to me is funny enough to sort of validate it getting such prominence in the movie. If you like Steven Spielberg and almost everyone does, you'll want to see a movie about what inspired his artistic imagination. So that in and of itself, more than, you know, Brana and, you know, probably Alfonso Cuaron for most people will attract most people to seeing this movie. I think you'll just have an okay time. Fair enough. You mentioned Seth Rogen, obviously Michelle Williams in this movie. They both appeared uh, as a couple in a movie 10 years ago called Take This Waltz, which I can't mm -hmm. recommend highly enough. Directed by uh, Sarah Polly, who mm -hmm. has a new movie coming out in December called Women Talking that uh, I'm excited to talk about in the future. Let me give you another one that I saw on the same note. Fire of Love. It's a documentary that came out several months ago. I had a chance to finally catch up with it. It is now accessible wherever you get your French Netflix. There was a documentary made by Werner Herzog that came out last year about volcanoes. Did you see that? I did. I liked it. It wasn't like my favorite Werner Herzog movie, but I thought it was yeah. good. It was fun. So I didn't have a chance to see that. I'm not a volcano guy, I guess I would say. <laughs> I think this one is probably in the same vein as the Werner Herzog one. Definitely the themes, I think, are the same. The difference here, what makes this interesting, the Werner Herzog one spoke about this couple, this real-life German couple called Maurice and Katia Kraft. I don't know if you remember them from uh, the Werner Herzog movie. This is a movie only about them using only their footage. They were killed in a volcano eruption. And they tell you that at the beginning of the movie. So it's not like a spoiler whatsoever. They were the world's most celebrated volcanologists before they were killed. Meaning they were the couple who always showed up as volcanoes were going off and went closer than anyone else and took a amazing footage, live footage. And so this movie is only using their own live footage while telling the story of sort of their love for each other and their love for volcanoes. I'm just not drawn in enough to nature documentaries in the way that they'll like stay five seconds longer than is necessary on a bit of rock or on like the wind going past something. You know, there's that style in documentaries where like the camera sort of waits longer than I feel probably made the final cut of the documentaries that the crafts couple themselves released. Every couple would want a movie made about their relationship to be at the quality of this movie. On the whole, I recommend it, but I think it's like a good documentary about volcanoes. It's gotten a ton of love. People are saying best documentary type of the year. I wouldn't go that far. Just while we're on the documentary vibe, I also saw Riotsville, USA which is a documentary you may have heard of. It's been getting some attention. Using original footage as well. It's about how the U.S. police or army, I guess a bit of both, they built these like fake towns in the 1960s or 70s in order to train police forces to put down like black protesters. This is around the time when the Chicago, you know, not what is it, mm, 1960, you know, yeah, 68, I think. Athena, Detroit, Trial of Chicago 7, all of those are telling basically the same story as Riotsville, USA, but they're telling it much more powerfully and critically. And Riotsville, USA spends the first half an hour telling you about these like little fake towns. And the message is all about like, the police overtrained to over aggressively put down black protests that didn't need to be put down as as violently and as aggressively as they were. And then they say, and this leaches into, you know, decades of over policing, etc. You know, some of that message I didn't feel as extra insightful, maybe because I already agree with it. There wasn't like that much extra evidence they were bringing to bear that we don't already know. 
Uh, and then they also do that thing that the previous documentary did. They linger too long on every single scene. So a big thing that they do in Ridesville, they use a lot of footage of reporters. They love to draw it out and show you kind of the awkwardness of how the reporters were getting set up. And I guess it's trying to kind of show the extra authenticity somehow of the footage. I don't get it. Like, why do I have to have this dead time of, you know, watching the people take their mics off? I don't think Ridesville USA is, is such a wall. I would go back and watch Detroit again. I would definitely see Athena before I see this. So to me, it's a pass. I haven't seen much by way of documentaries yet this year. So I'm kind of later this month, maybe after I catch up with a few more mm -hmm. narrative titles, I'm going to do a documentary deep dive and see what's kind of cooking on that front. I mean, I can convince you that Athena is a documentary and then, you know, get you <laughs> because of that. Let me give you two more. One of them is Fresh. Fresh came out earlier in the year. Our dearly beloved departed uh, co-host Av gave it a bunch of love. I don't know if he really liked the movie, but he said he really liked the opening movie. Fresh is a movie about Sebastian Stan, the sort of sidekick in the Captain America movies. He plays a sadistic serial killer. He kidnaps women. He kind of entraps them by pretending to love them. Basically slowly kills these women by like slowly chopping off their body parts, selling it off to like rich, crazy people like him who fetishize eating young women's meat. So the movie's called Fresh because it's like fresh meat. Um, I hated this movie. I think I shared <laughs> some of why. I don't like glorifying serial killers. Netflix puts out a series a month, it seems, about serial killers. There was one about Jeffrey Dahmer recently. I don't like the glorification of serial killers. I don't understand why pop culture keeps going back to it. I get that people have this like weird fascination with them. But like part of that weird fascination is bred by constantly putting out more and more content. Yes, obviously Sebastian Stan is the bad guy, but he's also the bad guy who gets the best scenes. He has all these scenes with pop like 90s rock playing as he's like chopping the body parts up. And like they're doing that to kind of be like, oh, it's not like obviously it's kind of disgusting the fact that he's like chopping this woman up and like putting her meat into bags and putting people's names on it and then putting it in the mail. But they do it all to this like 90s score and he's like dancing around as he's doing it and he like looks really cool and he has this like sadistic smile on his face. I don't know. I hate that kind of stuff. The movie is not trying to be sophisticated, but it's this genre of like soft horror or like soft fun horror. You know, the girls are going to get their revenge on him by the end. And they're going to get away and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's not like a sophisticated plot by any means. Tell you what I really liked about it, though. It's like Get Out style setup where she leaves a bit of clues behind one of the girls that's kidnapped so that like her boyfriend or her friend can come get her. And you know, like in Get Out, like he has that bumbling uh, friend who, you know, is on the way to save him and he takes like the whole movie to get there. Yeah. So there's a similar character in Fresh. What I like the most about Fresh is that this bartender boyfriend spends like the whole movie kind of whatever slowly figuring out where he has to go and he manages to get to the house where all the girls are locked up obviously he gets there just when the girls have broken out and they're busy like fighting with sebastian stan and they're getting revenge on him and it's like a whole fight to the death he hears this like violent fighting going on and he goes like f this i'm not getting involved with these crazy people he gets back in his car and he drives away and he's not in the rest of the movie playing up like women power and like you don't have to rely upon your boyfriend coming to rescue you you or me if we drove up to a house in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night and we heard gunshots and screaming and like blood curling whatever going on we'd probably jump back into our car for someone who is like not such a close friend of ours and drive away <laughs> so a thousand percent yeah so that <laughs> is one thing i certainly like about the movie probably my favorite scene there's a wonderful chris abbott movie called piercing that came out like two or three years ago also a horror movie also sort of about like i guess a wannabe serial killer unlike fresh i guess is more wannabe than actual i think piercing is a wonderful movie i think chris abbott is great in it i think it's like a really thoughtful movie interesting movie challenging movie it's everything fresh isn't so go see Piercing, don't see Fresh. She Said is a new movie that came out in November, directed by Maria Schrader. It tells the story of 
the two New York Times reporters, Megan Tuohy and Jody Cantor, who are played by Carrie Mulligan and uh, Zoe Kazan, who broke the Harvey Weinstein story in the paper, really just kind of their reporting journey and reminiscent of a movie like Spotlight, that uh, Spotlight probably is superior, but I thought she said was a worthy journalism entry. Like, I'm a sucker for movies like that. Just like I'm a, a sucker to sort of like hate. What's the opposite of a sucker? Uh, repelled by uh, coming of age, uh, semi-autobiographical movies. Uh, really just enjoy a journalism movie and, you know, kind of the nuts and bolts of reporting. In this case, some of the stuff was trying to get women, some very famous and some not famous at all, to kind of tell their stories publicly and go on the record and emotionally taxing for these women in different ways. Um, and I thought that was kind of interesting. Differently, they process what they're trying to do and sort of the gravity of all of it. It's a good movie. It's got a good cast outside of them. Patricia Clarkson's an actress I really like. She plays one of the sort of higher up editors at the Times. And then Andre Brower, um, who uh, I also really, really like a lot as an actor. You compared this to like Spotlight. I thought it was kind of trying to go for like an all the president's men style. Like There is a little bit of that to it but spotlight had that too i think the standout scene in spotlight is this phone call where they're we have a priest on the record and somebody's like a priest and they're like what do you mean you know and sort of the gravity of it all is kind of hitting them and and this movie has that too like it's kind of funny knowing that it's like a schrader directing it because it does kind of this idea that new york is this villainous character lingering over everything and there's who's following you and i thought it was a good movie like i understand why maybe people don't want to revisit Harvey Weinstein five years after it happened in movie form. I thought she said was probably, you know, as good as the Fablemans in terms of just like effective storytelling. And I'm probably more inclined to like, she said was asking a lot less than the Fablemans. Like it took a lot for me to like get on board with the Fablemans because of how I feel about movies like that. And she said like almost needed to do nothing for me to be on board with it. So in the journalism movies, I think you'll probably dig this. If that's not your thing, then don't even bother. You saw the assistant from 2020, right? Yeah. That was the number one movie of 2020, I believe. If I'm recalling correctly. No, I think you got, I think it was Promising. Oh, promising, no. It was Promising Young Woman, correct? Which Carrie Mulligan, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no. And so it's, it's funny. It's actually funny like, because of the two, you know, lead characters in this movie, Carrie Mulligan's is kind of like Pitbull. And when they need somebody in theory, you know, slam somebody's face into a counter, not that that ever happens. If it were to happen, she's the one doing it. I told my wife while we were watching, I was like, you're not supposed to mess with Carrie Mulligan. Like we saw Promising Young Woman. That's the lesson of that movie. Like do not mess with her. <laughs> and her character has like an element of that also. The reason I mentioned Assistant though, is that after watching Assistant, I didn't feel like I needed another you know, Me Too, Weinstein yeah. movie, because I felt the assistant was such a devastating takedown, very much of Weinstein. Like, you don't say that, right? Yeah, but uh, it is. Character who sort of looks like him from the back, who sort of is like the big bad yeah. guy targeting. I wasn't even like operating with She Said on that wavelength because I was just thinking about it as this is a reporting story. This is a journalism story. These are the personal lives of these journalists. Like, I wasn't really thinking like systemically of this is me too. This is Harvey Weinstein. This is what that is. And that's, this is how this relates to other similar movies. To me, it was all just kind of about the inner workings of the paper and, and the reporting process and all that stuff like that's, but that's just me. Maybe that's just like how I connect with movies like that. There's definitely like a through line. I'm not sure if it connects to the Fablemans, but definitely starting with Tar and we Yeah, for sure Tar. <laughs> really coming to She Said. I also saw Causeway. Causeway is about Jeff right. Lawrence 
playing a veteran. It's a very somber movie. I think Jennifer Lawrence is kind of playing that kind of somber style acting, which in general I don't like when people are too buttoned in. The name of the second actor in Causeway, David... Hyre Pierce, does that make sense? No, Brian. Uh, no, da- Brian... David Hyde Pierce is from Fraser. Okay, Brian. Brian Tyree Henry, right? Brian Tyree Henry, was I in the right direction whatsoever? Not really. Uh, they, uh, you know, uh, that'd be a fun side by side, but go yeah. ahead. Um, first off, <laughs> Stephen McKinley, who you recognize his face instantly, but Stephen... yeah, I know Stephen McKinley. Yeah, yeah. So I just, I just love his face and his style. He's and... awesome. So he's like completely unnecessary in this movie, but he's also just playing himself. He's necessary in every movie, though. Yeah. He's necessary. He's just he has such a good presence. So he's in the movie. I know. I he's totally like, agree. I would watch yeah, almost anything he has. Hundred um, percent. Jennifer Lawrence is this like vet coming back from Afghanistan who has a lot of like post traumatic stress syndrome, and then Brian Tyree Henry is a guy living in her hometown in New Orleans somewhere who got into like a terrible car accident, so he's lost a leg, and he also has a lot of post uh, trauma. And so both of them get basically a matching scene when they tell the other one. The two of them develop like a close friendship over the course of the movie. They both have these scenes where they have to like confess to the other one what actually happened to them. Brian Henry's acts the hell out of it. And it's so engaging and intense the way he like communicates to her what happened to him. And the way she communicates to him is just like vapid and dry. Now, maybe that's kind of going into the role they asked her to portray, but I just think that um, he's the best part of this movie besides Stephen McKinley, Brian Tyree Henry. And if anything, it's worth seeing Causeway for him. My last bit about it is that the culminating scene in this movie is that Jennifer Lawrence goes to see her like druggy brother who's been in prison the whole movie. And we know this, like we know he's been off in prison and he does drugs. And then what you find, I guess, which is a surprise is that he's deaf, which they don't tell you until then. And the entire kind of, key last scene of the movie which goes on for like five minutes is her doing sign language with her brother the version of the movie i was watching did not have hard-coded subtitles and i couldn't find subtitles to match the movie and so i do not know what happened during the key last five minutes of the movie where her and her brother are getting all emotional and sign languaging to each other because there was no subtitles i might have missed kind of like the knockout punch this movie is going for in terms of emotions it's not a bad movie it's exactly what you kind of may think of it from this description which is it's a very somber movie about two people who have a lot of trauma kind of bonding slowly in new orleans not per se a bad movie just maybe not what i was in the mood for can you give me a classics corner my classics corner was going to be todd field but i didn't manage to get to that (laughs) Uh, really quick the only super new to me movie that's older that i watched relatively recently was tootsie kind of a convoluted way is that my wife uh, and i got to watching tootsie um, but we both really liked it. It was very funny. Uh, Dustin Hoffman, you know, a uh, struggling actor, uh, decides to dress up as a woman and get a part on a soap opera. It holds up fairly well and respectably. And and I just thought it was a ton of fun. Let us down like a little 80s rabbit hole, which, uh, you know, if we had more time, I'd get into much maligned decade. Um, but I think there's still fun movies to be found there. And Tootsie is definitely one of them. Is there like a Tootsie, some like it hot sort of parallel theme going on? Because partly when you're describing Tootsie, I was like, oh, it sounds Kind of like some like it hot. Maybe that's blonde is peeking through into November on us. <laughs> yeah. Would you put it into the same pantheon as some like it hot or not quite as memorable? I don't have great affinity for some like it hot that I feel like oh, yeah? a lot of, I mean, it's a great movie, but I'm not like, oh my God, it's like one of the best movies ever. And mm-hmm. I mean, I wouldn't say that about Tootsie either, but I just think like, yeah, both those movies are pretty fun and enjoyable. And mm-hmm. I, I think hold up, you know, all these mm-hmm. years later and for mm-hmm. both of them. So probably belongs there. I don't know what pantheon of moviedom they those belong in but you know enjoyable comedies that uh stand the test of time yes 
When a comedy can stand the test of time, it can be tough. And when it can, that is all the credit it needs. We'll see what stands the test of December, 30 or so days from now. John, speak to you then. Looking forward to it. It's time. Never was much with words. Once you board this ship, there's no turning back. The next ground your feet touch will be that of the new world. If any of you have lost your nerve, then step away now and let no one judge you.